1923, the Snap-on Corporation got a patent, patent number 1443413, for an early pioneering ratchet wrench. What's a ratchet wrench? It's something that when you turn it one direction, you can apply force and make something go forward, and it can't go backwards. And so the ratchet only turns in one direction. And as metaphors go, a patent in 1923 for an industrial ratchet is a really good one. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about the measures of capitalism. But first, ironically enough, here's a message from our sponsor. Get better clients. There, in three words, is the strategy of any freelancer who wants to do better work. Get better clients. You can't work more hours, but you can work for people who appreciate the work you want to do. They will push you harder. You will do better work. They will talk about you. You will get paid more. You will be more proud of what you produce. How to get better clients. I've been thinking about this for a long time, and we have built a workshop just for you. If you work for yourself, I really think you need to check it out. It's not a bunch of videos. It's a workshop. You will work with other freelancers, working your way forward to figure out how to do this work that matters. I hope you'll take a minute to check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. Throughout the 1800s and the 1900s and even today, capitalism has been the force that changed the world. Capitalism, a very simple idea, of finding a market, finding a need, selling something for less than it's worth to the person who's buying it, repeating the process over and over again, is in many ways a ratchet. It's a ratchet because if there are three products and someone wants to grow market share, someone wants to build something, they have to make something that's better than the existing options, better in some way than the existing options, because if they don't, no one will buy it. And so the argument for unbridled capitalism is very straightforward. It seeks to solve problems. It gets rewarded when it solves problems. And if it's not solving your problem, then you can move on. And capitalists need to keep score. And this is where the ratchet comes in. Because once you start building a business, if you are measuring return, return on investment, return on sales, you will try to make that number go up. If you need to issue stock, raise money from a bank, find an investor, the investor will choose to invest in the best possible investment. And so if the standard of a return on investment is 6% and another company figures out how to get 8%, the ratchet turns. Because the people who are getting 6% aren't going to get any more investment because the investment's going to go to the 8% person. And so the ratchet turns. And during the 1800s, it was a free-for-all. We still remember names like Astor and Carnegie and Mellon and J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller and Leland Stanford. These folks were robber barons. Like so many juicy terms, it comes from a German phrase. Robber barons in Germany would capture a piece of land and then charge travelers a toll, an illegal toll, to go through the place that they were patrolling. And the pejorative robber baron described monopolists 
who were racking up things in railroads or finance, or even in the case of John Warren Gates in barbed wire, and figured out ways to charge a premium to figure out how to manipulate the market, to figure out how not to be capitalists at all, but simply to turn the ratchet one more time. Here's the thing. It's easy to be lazy when you think about winning at capitalism. Lazy because there's only one number to measure. What's the return? If I put money into this, how much do I get back? If I build this business, how much do I make? One number. Anything we do as humans where there's just one number, people will come up with ways to make that number go up. And so that idea has spread and been built deep into the bones of capitalism. You want to make a social networking app? How many signups did you get? You want to launch a new kind of pesticide? What is the yield per acre? One number. And you've probably guessed one number gets us into lots of trouble. It gets us into lots of trouble because people like Mark Hopkins, who were running railroads, or William Randolph Hearst, who was running the media, said, quite proudly, I am making my number go up. What's the problem? Well, in one respect, the problem is that one number forgets the factor of time. Are you making more money today? Or are you making more money in the long run? And so apologists for Milton Friedman's maxim that the only job of a corporation is to enrich its shareholders is to say, well, what they mean is in the long run. And so you can't enrich your shareholders by doing nothing but a short-term hustle because in the long run, you'll lose. I don't think that goes nearly far enough because what that number leaves out is so many things. What about externalities? What about the scraps that we dump into the river? What about the toll on the people who work in the organization? What about the way culture can be manipulated to change how people engage with one another simply because you're trying to make your number go up? What about the injustices created or perpetrated in the name of making a number go up? Suddenly, it's complicated. It's complicated because with more than one number, with nine numbers or 18 numbers, when we are measuring the well-being not just of customers, but of bystanders, when we are measuring not just how did your product make things better, but what happened to it when it went into the refuse stream, when we are talking about things like how much carbon did it take to make and how much does it take to use, when we talk about who was left out, what divisions were created by what you did, suddenly it's really complicated. And at the same time, there's still a ratchet. There's still a ratchet on Wall Street. There's still a ratchet of you have to justify the fact that you are looking at dozens of factors when you are talking to the business press and your investors and your board because they would prefer to do the easy thing, the thing that makes it easy to feel like a hero, easy to feel successful. I made that number go up. If that number, how much did you make as a return on investment, is the only symptom of whether you are being useful to society, it's way easier to go to work with your head held high. The alternative is to realize that there's no singular hero, that there is no perfect model, that there is a messy series of choices we have to make if we are going to be in the business of changing the culture, of changing the market, of changing people's lives. And so the easy thing to do is stay home and do nothing. 
The easy thing to do is abdicate, to let other people do something and then blame them when it doesn't match your agenda. The alternative is to figure out for the smallest viable audience, for a group of people, for an institution that you can influence or create, what are my metrics? And how am I going to scale that to make the change I want to make in a way that I am proud of? And it's messy and it's complicated and no one knows the right answer. Is it okay to come up with crop rotation? Because crop rotation leads to more yield in your farm. And if you got more yield in your farm, more people will eat. But there are trade-offs because it starts down the path of industrializing agriculture. Is it okay to use bees to pollinate your avocado trees? Well, on one hand, that creates a use for bees, which makes it more likely because humans care about what they can use, that someone will care about them. On the other hand, it can endanger all the bee populations. And if we do that, that's not fair to them or to us. When we think about how we are going to be in the world, there are so many choices to be made. If we are serving one group, are we making another group feel deliberately left out? If we are selling status, does that status we sell come at the expense of making other people feel excluded? What happens if we want to build an institution that confers something scarce on people? Does that scarcity create value? Does it create it for everyone or just some people? Is it okay that only some people can write prescriptions or should everyone be able to write a prescription? How do we manage that scarcity as well? So as you've probably guessed, there are way more questions here than answers. But what's important is to see that just because there's a ratchet and just because it's easy to measure doesn't mean that's your job. That capital seeking higher returns is what capital does. But that doesn't mean it's our job to play that single metric game. What we have instead is a chance to decide what would make us proud. What change do we actually seek to make in the world? And how can we do it in a way that makes a difference? Everything has side effects. We call them side effects because we believe that there's only one number that matters, the ratchet, but they're not side effects. They're simply effects. Everything has effects. If we come up with a really delicious soft drink and a great ad campaign to go with it, we'll sell more bottles of it. If we sell more bottles of it, more people will get diabetes. If we sell more bottles of it, more bottles will be in the environment. If we don't come up with something that people want, will someone else, will the people who work with us, who depend on us, be out of a job? And then what will they eat? Or consider something else, something less obvious. What about inventing the light bulb? Well, inventing the light bulb has effects. It has effects because you can build entire industries around the idea that we can get way more done and increase our comfort and satisfaction of life by not being in the dark all night. But it has effects like we have to build dams. We have to have coal-fired power plants. We didn't have 140 years ago an easy, efficient, cost-free way to make power. Well, what about LED lights? LED lights are way better than incandescent bulbs. Better light, more efficient, they last longer, they use far less electricity, but they have effects. Who created them? How were they created? What are the human costs and the environmental costs of making them? The list goes on and on. 
there are effects. Everything we do, everything we don't do has an effect. It was so much easier to be a lazy capitalist and say, I got only one number. Please measure me on that one number and I don't have to worry about anything else. But we're not lazy capitalists, we're humans. And what that means is we need to measure a complicated set of trade-offs, only one of which is easy to measure. The rest involve time and humanity and culture and the people around us. So I wish I had a map for you. I don't. I'm not even sure I can share a compass. But I do know we're not asking the question often enough, that we shouldn't be justifying whatever we're doing based on one number. We should figure out what competes with what and what hard decisions we're going to make about this instead of that. Because we live in a world of opportunity, and opportunity means opportunity cost. Because every time we do something, we're not doing something else. And so, in these times, this upheaval, this upside-down world we live in, one thing we can do is think really hard about how we can become agents of change by building something and pointing to what we build and figuring out how to make something better. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a question from a previous episode. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode or just about anything else that's relevant to listeners, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. A good one from Gwen this week with many layers to it. Here we go. Hi, Seth. This is Gwen, and I am a food photographer working in Los Angeles. I have been wanting to connect with a community around food photography, and after hearing your Zoom Revolution episode, I finally decided to gather the others and build it. The response was humbling, and I now have a committed group who get together monthly to discuss our industry, share best practices, and encourage each other. It's been transformative and was probably the best thing I've done for my own sanity, but also allowed me to build something really special and find my others at a time when we all needed it. My question's about what to do next. The group and the conversations have been incredibly helpful, but I find myself wanting to build something bigger or better. I want the group to have a bigger impact in the field of food photography, both for the participants in the group and for the clients that we serve. I find myself forced to limit the number of attendees because I don't have time to run my own business and administer the group, which I put a lot of time and effort into to ensure that the attendees are prepared and feel seen and heard. I know this is selfish, but my time is limited and this doesn't pay the bills. 
I'm also committed to not making money off the people that are in the group because I feel that the people who are in the early stages of their careers are easy targets for online educators and coaches, which they're becoming more and more of. But paid coaching and online education is not how I want to contribute to the world of food photography. I know that the people in the group already feel like they're getting a benefit, but I can't help but feel like there must be a way to leverage this kind of special focused community to build something bigger. I'd like all my effort to have a bigger impact in people's lives, whether those people are the participants in the group or the clients that we serve. Any ideas or frameworks to think about this problem would be much appreciated. Thanks so much. Thank you, Gwen. This ties in to a lot of the things I've been thinking about and writing about lately. You are a community organizer. You're an impresario. You're a freelancer. And you're a bootstrapper, all in one. Let's take these one by one and figure out how it helps you and others go forward. And yes, thank you. Thank you for leading and connecting and helping people in your community of choice get to where they're going. So I'll start with this. Community organizer. It's a more important job than ever before because people feel dislocated, because people want to be with people like them on a similar journey, enrolled in where they are going. And it used to be a community organizer was geographic in their focus, but now it can be, as in your case, professional. So you discovered that there is a community just waiting to be organized. That doesn't mean you have to do it for a living, but it does mean you probably could. And you are right that there are people who will take advantage of just about anyone if they can. But that doesn't mean that you can't show up for a community and charge them fairly for their ability to belong, for the value that they will create. That doesn't mean you need to do it, want to do it, but you could. I don't think it's immoral to say to this group of people, for $100 a month, this is what you're going to get, and they can choose to get it or not. But you're also a bootstrapper in that you are starting to build a business, not by going to the bank or a venture capitalist, but by finding a way to get your clients, your partners, your community to pay for what you're creating before you have to incur the expense of creating it. This is a marvelous opportunity to build something bigger than yourself. And yes, you're a freelancer, and the Freelancer's Workshop is rolling out just this week. A freelancer is somebody who gets paid when they work. I'm a freelancer most days. If you hear my voice, it's because I'm talking. If you read my words, it's because I wrote them. I have no team, no staff. It's just me. So how does a freelancer move forward? Well, you can't work more hours. And so the way to move forward is to get better clients. Getting better clients, people who challenge you, who talk about your work, people who demand better, people who eagerly pay more for what you do. You don't want the people who are on Fiverr looking for a cheap photographer. You want the people who are looking for Gwen, people who are looking for the work you want to do. And becoming better at being a freelancer is the work if you choose to be a freelancer. And that leads to the final part of what I wanted to talk about, which is the idea that there is a hard part. What is the hard part about being a food photographer? Well, learning how to use glycerin or LED lights or a flash or other ways of prepping the food, 
Those are things that people can learn. They can learn them by watching some videos, reading a book, or hanging out with people like you. That's not the hard part. The hard part is finding clients. The hard part is moving up to find better clients. The hard part is finding the reserves, the community reserves, the intestinal fortitude to stick it out when you don't have any clients. That that is, in fact, what this community desperately needs to get better clients. And so as you navigate your way through this, now that you know what the hard part is, you can decide, does being in a community help you? Does leading a community help you? If you are known as the person who runs the most important community on food styling and photography, it seems to me you might get better clients. If you are able to organize and align other food photographers so that you share leads with each other, so that you establish standards for the industry, so that you showcase each other's work, that only leads to a forward ratchet. We see this in just about every industry that has freelancers in it doing creative work. Dane Sanders wrote the definitive book on how wedding photographers can level up. He gave away every secret he knew. By doing that, he got better gigs as a wedding photographer, not fewer gigs. Because what is scarce is trust, and what is scarce is awareness. That the more you can be trusted, the more you can tell your story on a bigger stage, the more likely it is that the clients you seek will come to you for what they need. So I didn't answer your question specifically because there are so many layers to it, and I'm not sure that there is just one answer. But there are choices, and the choices in front of you are to be part of a community or to run one or to leave it all together. The choices are to live with the clients you've got or to figure out what the hard work would be like to get better clients. As we choose to fill our days, freelancers make a choice every day. That choice is to spend the only asset we've got, our time, to help us make the change we seek to make in the community we serve. And you're looking right at it, the fork in the road. You have choices to make about your time. You have choices to make about the community. And when you make those choices in a coherent way, you're going to get to where you seek to go. Thanks for leading, and thanks for this question. We'll see you all next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. 
It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.